As we enter the fifth month of the year, hashtag pandemic life is still our reality. Summer as we knew it is effectively canceled. Large gatherings, a pipe dream. But life goes on, and the Capital Region is trying to make the best of it. On this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the top stories in the Times Union. The counties of the state are going to be judged on whether or not they are meeting the recovery metrics. We'll hear about an unlikely hero in our community. It's the end of life and uh, something that's really important. And we'll hear the answer to a question many of us never realized we were curious about. How do people who are having an affair continue having an affair? This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. Let's start with a look at what happened at the Times Union this week. I am here with Casey Seiler, once more editor of the Times Union. Let's talk about the top stories in the paper and online this week. Um, I believe some fiscal implications are starting to rear their ugly heads as a result of this pandemic. What's your take? Definitely, Jess, that's been the big story this week is the fiscal implications that are about to come down on school districts and on local governments. We've had a series of stories by our Metro reporters about how Schenectady, Troy, Albany, the three biggest urban uh, centers in our region, already contemplating moving to layoffs, the suspension of services. Who is going to get laid off if you are a worker who has been at home, kind of not working since the shutdown began? It is eminently possible that you might be on one of those lists that mayors and other local officials are drawing up for addressing the budget shortfall that everybody is is grappling with in the crisis. And now also the state has begun to talk about recovery plans and fiscal implications and such. What's the latest with that? The Cuomo administration and Governor Cuomo himself in his daily briefings have been laying out exactly the criteria that regions of the state will have to meet. And in an interesting twist that has annoyed or concerned, maybe is the better term, some county leaders, the counties of the state are going to be judged on whether or not they are meeting the recovery metrics by where they fall within the regional economic development system. And that's 10 groupings, some of them making a little bit more sense than others across the state that were set up to kind of dole out the annual economic development money that these organizations, that the, that the Red Sea councils, regional economic development councils, apply for. There's a whole system involved. Now, whether or not the economic development map for the state is the best pandemic recovery unit is an open question that some county leaders have already kind of uh, called into question. Now, these regions are going to have to meet, as noted, very specific metrics for how the rate of infection and hospitalization is dropping and whether it's dropping over a 14-day period. 
and also whether or not these regions, once again, and this is going to be on a county by county level, are going to be able to create an infrastructure for testing and also for contact tracing, which is kind of the detective work that allows for each case of infection to essentially be mapped. So if, God forbid, you were infected, the contact tracer would call you up, one assumes, and say, who have you been in contact with over the course of the last X number of days? You know, where did you go get a pickup, you know, order uh, for takeout? Who, what friends perhaps did you see with or, uh, or uh, with or within, you know, six feet, that kind of thing over the course of the last two weeks? So you can more ably uh, kind of uh, map out the circle of contacts of potential infections so that they don't grow. As this is all happening, you know, in the state and the county level and the local level, what are all the effects on us, on the paper, uh, on our operations? Is there anything, you know, that we have to start thinking about now as the state prepares to think about opening back up? Yeah, I mean, like every other business, uh, we are trying to figure out when, how, and even if we want workers to come back into the office. I mean, I'm speaking for the newsroom here, but I know that we have managed to do amazing, outstanding work over the course of the last two months, even though we are the vast, vast majority of us working from home. So the question you have to ask yourself that every business has to ask itself is, who do you want to come back? And even before that, you need to say, if those people come back, how are we going to keep them as safe as possible? Well, this is a great segue in that you and some local business leaders and experts on the topic had a recent Facebook Live event where you, you know, discussed these things and, you know, went through and answered questions from different people about how to bring their employees back to work. So now there's going to be another Facebook Live next week. You want to tease that a little bit for us? Yeah, this is part of our Back to Business series, which the Times Union is presenting along with um, Hugh Johnson Advisors, a noted local uh, financial firm here in the Capital Region. We've been doing these Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. Our third of four discussions is going to happen uh, next Tuesday morning, and that will be on exactly what we've been talking about, workforce issues. We've got um, some experts in the field of human resources who are going to contribute their expertise, as well as a local manufacturer who's going to kind of describe the issues that um, that his company is up against as they try to uh, continue production and look towards having more people back in, in the workplace. So it should be really interesting. It's going to be broadcast live on YouTube and on the Times Union's Facebook Live page. People can go to Eventbrite to um, sign up for that. We've had about uh, 200 to 300 people on the last two discussions, and we think this one will be very well attended as well. All right, thank you for that. We're looking forward to it. And uh, with that, I'll let you get back to the grind and we'll catch up with you next week. Great. Thanks, Jess. One of the more sobering realities we're facing is the alarming death toll of the COVID-19 pandemic. As of this week, the total number of COVID-related deaths in New York State has surpassed 25,000. Many of those deaths are downstate, but funeral directors are overwhelmed and they're looking upstate for help. This week, New York State Writers Institute head and Times Union columnist Paul Grondahl met a Capital Region man who is helping relieve that burden. I talked to Paul to find out more. 
you recently wrote a story about a character that we don't usually think about in our daily lives. Yes, uh, I wrote a story um, on crematorium and the crematorium operator at Albany Rural Cemetery. It's on the National Register of Historic Places. It's a great historic uh, cemetery. I was familiar with the crematorium there, and there's a new director, new or rather new general manager, so I asked if I could come talk with him, and, and he said, sure. And I met this young man, Damien Hood, who um, it's a difficult job. It's, 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 a, it's a strange job, but he, he's very somber, and he's very careful, and he's reverential. But the other part of the story is the coronavirus pandemic created this huge backlog, and they're trying to be helpful for the overwhelmed funeral directors of downstate. There's now bodies coming here from Brooklyn, Dutchess County, other counties along the lower Hudson Valley because they have no place to keep them and no, you know, not enough crematoriums to service them downstate. So they're helping out by doing the cremation and then sending the ashes back to where yes. from? So the funeral directors will bring the bodies up and then when they have more to bring up they'll bring the ashes from before back down to the families downstate and then he has uh, you know the, the regular capacity that they do from the funeral directors in the area and there are crematoriums at three other local cemeteries oakwood cemetery in troy a vale cemetery in schenectady and park view in schenectady as well but is Albany Rural's crematorium the largest one in the area or the busiest one? It's, there's actually two. They call them retorts. They're, they're high efficiency, high temperature furnaces, and they have two that are going constantly now. You know, they are the oldest and most historic cemetery, and they're also non-denominational, which not all cemeteries are, and they have capacity, so they have been taking I didn't check with the other uh, local ones. They may also be helping downstate. Uh, New York Times did a very good story about a week ago, just the overwhelming backlog. Pretty gruesome. They found um, a large number of beginning to become badly decomposed bodies outside a uh, funeral home in Brooklyn. The guy apologized. He had nowhere else to store them. There, there's so many on uh, Hart Island in New York City. They were, it's, you know, the Hopper's Field or indigent people, they were burying, stacking them up, you know, in, in large graves. It's, it's a large number. I mean, you know, New York State has surpassed 25,000 deaths from the coronavirus pandemic, and New York City has had the bulk of those. Gosh, it sounds like something out of a history book, you know, with the plague of the, you know, Middle Ages and stuff. It, it just, it sounds so somber. I mean, what was it like for you going there and reporting on this? I was at the Times Union full-time reporter for 33 years, 1984 to 2017, thousands of stories of, of a lot of catastrophes and people at the best and, and the worst, most extreme. So I had been, you know, in, in autopsies or in surgeries, and so I wasn't squeamish at all. And it's actually very peaceful, beautiful, tranquil, because it's a historic cemetery and the mausoleum chapel in the back where the crematorium is has these beautiful tiffany stained glass windows and it's it's beautiful architecture and you know and it's very quiet and it's shut off there's no public access and things and this young man damien hood in a way i saw him as kind of a redemption he dropped out of high school he had kind of low wage jobs he did landscaping he was 
got hired on the grounds crew at Albany Rural Cemetery, worked there for a couple of years. And then there was an opening came up. Someone either retired or left. And he said, I'd like to try that job. It's a difficult job and not a lot of people want to do it. And he's found that it's a promotion. He feels good about himself because he's helping people on that last stage of their journey. And these are people or family members who specifically, you know, asked to be cremated. They wanted that service, and, and he feels good about providing it for them. Now, what about in these last couple of weeks or months now that we've been in this? Um, has that has his job changed? How does he feel about that? Absolutely. I mean, he's working as long as he can. Uh, physically, he's putting in 10, 12-hour days, uh, six days a week. The other thing is, you know, you have to let these uh, retort furnaces cool down. So it's about three hours uh, and then cool down for an hour and then extremely carefully. And this is where he's reverential and he does it exactly the same each time. You have to completely clean all the ashes, cremains from there before you, you know, bring the next body in. So he's very conscientious about that with uh, vacuuming and then sweeping and then gathering all those and, and putting them in a, in a container. Um, some families have their own custom container. Some purchase one from Albany Rural or some just have them in a temporary container. And then the funeral director comes and brings them back downstate. And there's also, you know, plenty of people who are still dying of natural causes. They're not all COVID deaths. So he services all the local funeral directors who've been going there for a long time. And this is kind of a service for the downstate people who are really overwhelmed by the volume. And now is he worried about, you know, the concerns over possibly spreading the virus yeah he he has uh you know a mask and gloves and he's very careful he disinfects um and and funeral directors are now under orders there's a state division of cemetery that has clear orders um, part of it is burials now are, are very small family members only no more than 10 people i think keep social distancing and with cremations the funeral directors are now disinfecting the body bags that they use and they're actually using now double bagging which is not normal to prevent the spread and he's he's very careful there were nine in the mausoleum chapel when i was there which was the highest one day number that they had and uh they're all in in similar cardboard boxes that are coffins and he you know he doesn't open them and everything and there's a, a metallic tag with a specific number that goes next to each one so there have been instances uh, elsewhere around the country where, you know, they had the wrong remains with the wrong person. There was a mix up in the paperwork and he's extremely careful. He showed me how he checks the paperwork, how he makes sure that that metal tag with the specific number is there the whole time. And when, when he cleans out the retort, it's also there. So he's, he's absolutely certain that each family is getting the remains of their loved one. That's really interesting. I mean, that's a yeah. process that, most people don't think about and sometimes more often than not don't want to think about. Exactly. I think though, it's interesting, historically, um, when I did that book on Albany Rural Cemetery in the Victorian era, people would come with picnic lunches. There was a different acceptance and belief in death. And they really felt like they were much more connected to their, their lost uh, ancestors and loved ones. So they would picnic, they talked freely about death. They were actually, you know, death cards. Uh, there was a, um, a trolley that came from Albany and on the weekends, it, Albany Rose Cemetery was full of, of kids playing and families 
having picnics around the, the, the grave sites. It was a, a different feeling. I think it's getting back to that now. If you go to Albany Rural Cemetery or St. Agnes Cemetery, which is adjacent to it, right next to it, these are cemeteries that are 170 years old or 175 years old. You'll see more people jogging, bird watching, walking their dogs. So I think things go in cycles and I think we're getting as a society a little more comfortable with, with death as a, as a cycle of life. I mean, it's, it's the full circle from, from birth to death. And, you know, families are, are creating more unique and personal funeral and burial services too. So I, I do see kind of a return to being more comfortable talking about and dealing with death. That sounds really peaceful and serene. I like that. You know, it's a job I couldn't do, but I think it's suiting Damien Hood very well. And I'm really glad that he's there. General manager, he's new. Um, David Quinn, uh, you know, he's just learning the funeral industry and he, he got thrown into it. It's, it's a historic, difficult, busy time. And they're trying also to, to stay afloat financially. Um, it's always been a struggle. Uh, it's a huge 467 acres. It's a lot of, of grounds to keep up. But anyway, he calls uh, Damien an everyday hero. And I like that. It's an essential service. You know, it's, it's not frontline healthcare worker, but it's the end of life. And uh, it's something that's really important. And uh, I, I like talking with him and, and meeting him. He's, he's goth, you know, he's got a, a, a piercing, a ring in his lip. He's got a lot of tattoos. He's got this kind of dark goth look. And he said, you know, I think this might be the job that really suits me. He said, I had a lot of jobs I didn't really like, and I wasn't that motivated as a student. But I think he might have found his calling, which is kind of cool. That's a great story. What a hero. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking to me about this. I look forward to talking to you about the next wonderful story that you write. Thanks, Jessica. After the break, we'll hear the tale of a COVID affair. If you're enjoying this podcast... Take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome back to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're following the tenets of social distancing, many of life's daily activities are off limits. Having an affair? Not recommended. But according to a recent feature written by the Times Union's Christy Gustafson Barletti, where there's a will, there's a way. You've written a story for this week's paper and online that is a bit salacious. So I was wondering about a couple of things while we're all on lockdown. And one of those things was, how do people who are having an affair continue having an affair? Because typically having an affair means you see the person and it's not only tough to go see the person, but it can also be possibly risky and dangerous to see the person. So you, uh, you had that question, and I didn't realize I had that question until I heard you ask that question, and I thought it was fascinating. So what did you find out? So I found out that, number one, affairs have definitely gone down. All experts say that, and it completely makes sense. But that doesn't mean that people haven't stopped. And part of it is I spoke with a licensed mental health professional, and he talked about affairs are a form of addiction. So it's not just, oh, I'm going to stop this because this is the right time to stop it, whether it's because it's too hard to go meet the person or I could be risking my family's health because I could maybe, you know, it's a small chance, but I could possibly bring coronavirus into my home. 
But when people are addicted, they will go to any length, as the expert said, to fulfill that addiction. And those are the people who are continuing to have their affairs. Now, you interviewed a couple of people in real life who are continuing their affairs in one way or another. Uh, to the extent that you can talk about them, who did you hear from? So yes, I promised everyone that I would keep the details basically non-existent, very minimal. Um, the only thing I will say is everybody's gender really is their gender. I didn't turn a man to a female. You know, I didn't. If I was talking about a woman, I really said I was talking about a woman. If I was talking about a man, I said I was talking about a man. I was surprised at the number of readers who were willing to talk to me about it via text, direct message, that kind of thing. Obviously, I promised I wouldn't say anything more beyond that. But I think part of it is maybe it feels a little bit therapeutic to talk about it. And of course, I'm nosy and a journalist and interested, and I will eat that up. So you can talk to me about it all day. So I'm like, here's another question. How much will you tell me? Will you tell me this? How do you do this? How do you make that work? For example, I wanted to, I asked everybody, how do you get out of the house? Because I think that's a really logical question. And some of the answers were, I'm going grocery shopping and the grocery store was really crowded and I had to wait a really long time to either get in or pay or whatever. You need to then come home with some food. Otherwise that obviously doesn't work. Um, another one was I'm going for a run or a walk. And obviously we're all encouraged to be outside right now. So that one can work as long as your partner or your, no one in your family offers to come with you. Those are the two big ones. And I think the third one was, which you might think would be the technology side of things texting, Zoom calls, um, and those kind of things. So I guess in the pandemic of 1918, they didn't have that as an excuse <laughs> that they could use, right? <laughs> in the pandemic of 1918, I think probably all affairs had to stop. <laughs> so you also mentioned something in your article that I found interesting that, you know, the reverse of things is sort of true too on some levels. Yes. I, pretty much every expert I spoke with said this is the case as well. So while some people are certainly getting sick of their partners or a little annoyed with them or a lot annoyed or going to their affairs, there's other people who, because they're essentially on lockdown with their partners, they're using this time to either reconnect or realize, you know what, here's what we need to work on. And now we're kind of forced to work on it because there's no getting away. I can't go have a girl's night. I can't um, you go to the gym. I can't do anything to kind of get away and relax or clear my mind. So it's right here and we have to talk about it and we might as well talk about it because no one can walk out on the other person and you're always home. So it is working in that, that way too. Now you talked to some folks from Ashley Madison, which kind of made headlines a few years ago, maybe more like a decade ago at this point, but um, they've kind of, at the time, they kind of changed the way affairs were handled and, and people had affairs in many ways. What, what did you hear from them now? So I liked talking with them a lot for a couple of reasons. One, now if people don't know, they're a website that essentially encourages or aids people who are married or in a relationship to connect with other people who are married in a relationship. So obviously what they say, you kind of can not predict, but you have an idea of the direction they're going to go just because that's their business model. That said, one thing I found interesting is they said, this is consistent, the, having an affair while in isolation or coming out of isolation, so they expect it to increase coming out, is very similar to other periods of time when we're in isolation on a much smaller level. So take, for example, they talked about the holiday season. You're off and off from work for a week, maybe even two weeks. Even if you're not, you, you're off for a few days, typically. You spend a lot more time with your family than you do normally. And they see a big rise every January in people joining the site and people looking for somebody on the side. And the 
company says that the same thing is happening here where restrictions have been loosened. You're seeing a greater number of members. It's almost like I'm free and now I'm going to go find something or I'm trapped and I need to do something. So I'm going to utilize the website. But so they're basically saying that Christmas is not the same kind of isolation, obviously, but it's a form and they always see an increase in numbers after any type of isolation. It's funny. I don't feel isolated at Christmas. I feel a little overwhelmed, but (laughs) (laughs) no, I know. I thought that was interesting because I feel like you think, oh, well, great. I get to spend time with my family. But I think sometimes people think, oh my gosh, I've had enough of my family. I need like the free fling on the side. And that's what a lot of people, I guess, are turning to Ashley Madison for. That's interesting. Now, Ashley Madison has a verifiable way to track these kind of statistics. The other experts that you talk to, how are they getting a hold of this? So I also talked to him, uh, like I said, the licensed mental health professional. He said he is not necessarily having more calls for this kind of thing because, again, affairs have gone down. That doesn't mean he hasn't talked to more people. You know, he's still doing marriage counseling and things like that, but it's not an increase in affairs. And then I also spoke with a private investigator, a local private investigator, and he said the same thing. He said he has not seen an increase in affairs but that coming out of it, there may be. So I think that was sort of the theme for all the experts that while it's not increasing now, everybody agrees that with that, that afterward there could possibly be an increase. Now, none of us know for sure, because obviously none of us have lived through a pandemic like this ever, <laughs> but it's a possibility and it makes sense. Like I said, it makes, I think everybody is, has their own version of stir crazy. And for some people it's relationship stir crazy. Well, what a fascinating question you've asked. Thank you so much for uh, giving me a little look inside of how you reported on this story. That's great. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. That's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside our newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on social or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. And stay safe out there.